Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey friends, welcome back to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast. It's Christina here today, and I am so excited to share with you today's episode with Virginia Soulsmith. Virginia is a journalist, frequent contributor to the New York Times, and writer of the book, The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America, and the newsletter and podcast, Burnt Toast. Today, we're diving into her newest book, set to drop in April, called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, where she explores the impact the war on childhood obesity has caused for kids of all ages to absorb a daily onslaught of body shame. She offers research-based strategies to help parents name and navigate the anti-fat bias that infiltrates our schools, doctor's offices, and family dinner tables. Today, she and I are diving into the book together and discussing how this system starts the beginning of parenthood, the expectations and guilt parents feel when their children don't meet medical body size guidelines, where fat phobia is seen the most, and ultimately, the research-backed approaches to what you can do to empower your children to own their relationship with food and their body. This book is absolutely incredible. It honestly should be a mandatory reading for every parent to medical professionals out there and answers so many questions that I hear from parents all the time. This couldn't be more relevant on the heels of the, the latest American Academy of Pediatrics updated guidelines. Let's jump right in. I love it. I love it so much. I was reading it and I was honestly thinking like beforehand, how I feel like it needs to be a book that every parent reads. And um, especially, I feel like especially any kind of parent that's working on consent and like wants mm-hmm. to work on consent with mm-hmm. their child, I feel like it's such an important message. Um, but why don't you introduce yourself and then we'll jump into all of the things with the book. So Sure. I'm Virginia Soul Smith. I am the author of Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. Um, I also write a newsletter called Burnt Toast and host the Burnt Toast podcast, both of which are about anti-fat bias, diet culture, and parenting. Um, I've been a journalist, a health journalist for about 20 years, um, first in women's magazines where I did a lot of the opposite of what I do now. And yeah, that's pretty much me and I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited. So I feel like I just want to jump into it. I feel like I could have asked a question based off every page because there's so much research and I love how you weave stories into it, like family, mm-hmm. like real life stories and throughout the entire book. But I feel like the overall message that I really got from it um, to kind of like start off the conversation was that your child is not defined by their body size and you are also as a parent not defined by your child's body size. Yeah, um, and that it's so difficult to navigate that because we live in a culture that is so obsessed with that and that it feels 
almost impossible as a parent to kind of navigate the complexities of diet culture and, and especially in the home and mm-hmm. all of that. Can you maybe share a little bit about what inspired you to kind of start writing this, this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when my first book came out, which is called The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America, um, and it focused on our relationship with food much more broadly. It's not just geared towards parents. There's lots of non-parents telling their stories, and you know, I'm exploring really the rise of modern diet culture and the impact it has on all of us. Um, but so when that book came out and I started doing events for it and interviews and all of that, I kept getting questions from parents and which I expected, of course, um, and it made sense. But I realized over and over the questions sort of boiled down to this one key tension, which is I really want my child to have a positive relationship with food, but I want them to eat healthy. I really want my child to love their body and not get an eating disorder and feel really good about themselves, but I don't want them to be fat. And it was like people are trying to thread this needle of like, eating, quote, perfectly, having the perfect body and loving yourself and letting go all of that noise. But you cannot do that (laughs) if it is all contingent on your body size and how you eat. You know, we have to like find, yeah, we have to let go of these things. And so I realized the piece of the conversation and like, I want to be clear, like there are lots of folks who are like dietitians, folks more qualified than I to talk about the nuances of how to feed a family and how to do intuitive eating or responsive feeding and all of those things. Like this book is not your how-to manual for that because I think we're already increasingly well-served on that front. But I felt like the piece of the conversation that wasn't happening was parents were not, um, being taught how to identify anti-fat bias in all of their own thoughts about food and body and in all the messages they were getting from the world about their kids' food and bodies. And if we cannot identify this as a bias and recognize it and start to unlearn it for ourselves, we are only going to keep perpetuating the same cycle. Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a good point too, because sometimes I'll get, as a nutritionist, I start, I work with a lot of teens and adults with eating disorders. And a lot of times when I start meeting with the parents, they'll ask me the same thing. Well, how do I navigate this? Or mm-hmm. how do I um, prevent my child from having these, these types of things coming up? And I think even like in, you know, in my own home with my own two kids, it also can be complicating to remind yourself sometimes of like, wait a minute, what, what is the end goal here? Mm-hmm. Like, what are we trying to do? Like, what am I trying to, 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 to kind of navigate here and what am I trying to force? And I think a lot of times that can be really difficult. And I feel like what you talk about in the beginning of the book is kind of this indoctrination that happens from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I think even from like the start of parenthood, like you even talk like from a cultural standpoint, how this is so built in and threaded into every single thing that we do, <laughs> every single thing that we do. Yeah. But I think as a parent, it's really hard to kind of see that in the big picture. You might be able to see it outside your home, but then when it comes to your kid, it's really difficult to kind of separate the two things. And I think part of it is because in parenthood, right from the beginning, we're monitoring our child's size. You know, it starts off right at the beginning and there is, I remember having this conversation because my youngest, um, Noah, 
um, has had difficulty gaining weight and had would like slip on her percentiles and stuff like that. And I remember one time going to the the pediatrician and saying like, all I'm hearing is a scorecard from you. Like every time I go in, it's like, is this like, uh, am I doing well or am I not doing well? Am I feeding my child or am I not feeding my child? And, and I think that's a lot of things that the parent, like the parents really live with and don't really know how to identify, but there is this like internal, like primal desire to want to take care of your child and feed them. And for whatever reason, right from the start and understandably from a medical standpoint, there are reasons why your child might be slipping on like percentiles or going like going high on percentiles and you want to be monitoring all of those different things. And I know you, in the book, you talk about experiencing that with your own child. And I think um, one of the things that can be difficult is how do you then turn that off? You know, at what point does it flip? And how do we then kind of navigate that? And I'm curious to hear like your thoughts around how do we then from a parent's perspective, turn off this scorecard for ourselves a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think everything you're saying is right on. I think that we experience so much judgment at the pediatrician's office, comments from relatives, comments from teachers, what, you know, there's so many sources for it. And it brings up our old stuff, right? It brings up how we felt as a kid about our body size, comments we heard and internalized at that age. And then now it's this new layer of like navigating it, both like reliving your own stuff and navigating it fresh with your child. And I think understanding the, like for me, it always starts with like, okay, let's see what the research says. How can I understand this as like an intellectual problem is just like how I'm wired to engage with the world um, for better or for worse. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, that's what led me to really do all this reporting and really see pretty, you know, nothing's ever definitive in science, but we can see very strong evidence for the fact that number one, parents can't parent body size, right? Like your Mm -hmm. child's body size is determined by genetics. It's determined by a ton of factors you have no control over. So you actually trying to like hold yourself to that expectation that you are going to parent your child to gain weight or to lose weight is like just a doomed proposition because it's not how bodies work. It's not what, you know, it's not a factor you have as much control over as you're told. Um, and then understanding like the ways this judgment really harms us, I think is super key for letting it go because then you can start to say, oh, it is actually not serving my child's health at all to be this fixated on growth chart percentiles. Like this is data to be curious about. This is like a piece of the puzzle that her doctor and I can look at from time to time. Um, Of course, there are scenarios, it sounds like you've been there, I've been there, where weight needs closer observation because a malnourished child is facing danger that, you know, you need to be managing. But even then, the child doesn't need to be part of that conversation. You know, it should be done with a lot of sensitivity and understanding for the trauma that it can cause to, to overly fixate on these things. But then you can, but, you know, for the vast majority of parents who are just parenting kids in the bodies they were born into, there's not a looming health crisis other than the sort of fear-mongered like what about future risk of blah you know da 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 Mm -hmm. you can just say like what serves my kid like enjoying meals together in a non-fraught way where we're actually not even talking that much about food you know finding ways to move our body because movement feels good and it's fun to play and there's like things they love to do 
not because I'm hoping it will give them a certain body size. And like, you just have to keep reframing the conversation. How do I take body size out of this? And then that gets to the harder work, which is, okay, that's the intellectual piece. Then there's the emotional piece of letting go of how important body size is. And that is some deeper work that's going to look different for all of us. But, you know, bringing in whatever support you need to do that, whether it's therapy, friends, you know, support systems, to start to do that healing, that's, I think, one of the most powerful things that we can all do for our kids and for ourselves. Yeah. I to- and also, like, other people's kids, other people's kids like a yeah, community absolutely. all together, yeah. right? And I think I think one of the, the things that can be really challenging and, and hard to hear from, like, a from a parent's perspective, I think sometimes is sometimes people will come to me and say, well, how do I prevent this in my own child? And one of the things I say to parents all the time is, well, the best thing you can do for your child's body image is to work on your own. I know it sucks that that's true. It's so sad. <laughs> so They're like, really no, I thought it could be anything but right. that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want what to other that. options do I have? Um, but what I will also say to that is, you doesn't mean you have to be perfect at it. Like, I think that's the other piece of this, right, is we're so conditioned to seek perfection and excellence in these topics that then when you hear, oh, I have to work on myself, you're like, I have to work on myself. I have to love myself completely or I can't be a good parent. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, no. That's also an arbitrary way too high yes. standard for most of us. Mm-hmm. What we're really saying is like, you can realize that aesthetics are less important than you've been taught that they were. You can realize that even if you don't like your body, like if you look in the mirror and you don't like everything you see, your body is still worthy of respect and trust and dignity and love. And like, those are the things that you can work on. Like, how do you start to understand that like, whether or not I measure up to these arbitrary beauty ideals is like the least interesting thing. And how can I just like love, love in the sense of taking care of my body, not love in the sense of like, oh, I love how I look. Like, that's nice. Yeah. That's fun when that happens. But that's like, it's like, how can I? That's like, a day to day. Who knows what's going to happen? Right. There's so many things that are going to influence that or not influence. Like you just, that's a moving target. But can I like love my body in the sense that I think it is valuable and I think it is worthy and I think it deserves you know, access to medical care and food to eat. And it deserves, you know, that like sleep and rest and all those kinds of things. 100%. I think one of the things that can be difficult from like a parental standpoint is that I, I think everyone listening is like, well, of course I want that for my child. You know, of course I want my child to feel like their body is inherently good and that they are good and they're not valued. I don't value, we might say to ourselves, well, of course I don't value my child based off of their size. But when we start to try to take control over their body size, inevitably, even though with the best intentions in mind, we start to like, um, what's the word, like um, incept that idea that maybe there is something wrong or that it needs to be controlled or it needs to be fixed in some way. Or like you mentioned in the book too, that it's untrustworthy. They're like, you can't trust it. So we have to become hypervigilant and manage and monitor every single thing that our child is doing in order to ward this off. And I think the thing that you really wrote that I, I love so much is that in so many ways, what we really wanna do is we wanna protect them from social stigma. 
And we use the guise of unhealthy habits and obesity and these, and I, you know, all the different things that we associate with that um, as kind of like this way to then say, instead of trying to, because we feel like fixing the social stigma is a big, big project for one family to take on. Um, so we say like, well, I can't fix that. I can't fix what other people are thinking, but I can do everything I can to protect my child by doing all these things. But then like, like you say, a thread are we pulling? Right. So I think that's, that's difficult. Yeah, no, I mean, that's what we have to step back and say is like, what is the larger message I'm giving my child when I do that? I want to keep you safe from these people who say your body is a problem. And my strategy for keeping you safe is to treat your body as a problem. So Mm -hmm. all you're doing at that point is reinforcing the idea that certain bodies are not okay, are not worthy of love, are not safe, et cetera, et cetera. And like teaching them that the bullies are right, which is, you know, if you insert any other reason kids get bullied, like if kids make fun of your kids clothes you're not like you know what the solution is for me to buy you those designer sneakers that everyone thinks are so cool like no you have a talk about how like people get really obsessed with the designer sneakers but it's not that important what you wear you know like you frame it in a totally different way and so we need to take a similar approach here where we you simultaneously and it is this is like it's really difficult work right because you have to hold together your child's pain whatever your child is experiencing from the world due to their body size that is real and you have to honor that and you have to say your body is not a problem for me i trust your body this is not a problem we need to solve the world is the problem and you need to then start to think about how do i arm them with the tools to navigate this reality rather than trying to keep them in some kind of bubble rather than trying to protect them from every possible exposure to this Um, whether that means trying to protect them by making them smaller or trying to protect them by like, like I've had parents be like, well, we just won't watch Peppa Pig in our house because the fat phobia around daddy pig's so intense. And I'm like, or it's awful. It's awful for sure. But, or is that an opportunity to say to your kids like, Hey, I don't like how they talk about daddy pig's body. I don't think there's anything wrong with a big tummy. Like, why, what do you think? And start building those skills for how do we navigate this together? So it is, it's, um, I really sympathize, I really empathize with the first response of I want to protect my kid. That's where we all start. But we have to step back and say like, well, what does that actually mean? Like what will serve them best in terms of protecting them? And probably it's not giving into all those larger messages. Oh, 100%. And it's really hard to do that too, because our instinct is I want to take care of my kid and do whatever I can to keep them safe. And I don't want them having really big feelings. And some of them are really intense, valid, big feelings that we can't do anything about as a parent. Um, But I do think it's like 100% right is like, sure, we can try to pretend that that doesn't exist, or Mm -hmm. we can take the opportunity and talk about it. And we can say like, yeah, there is a bigger body there. Or yes, that mm-hmm. does have a big value, but I don't think it's very kind to talk about people's bodies that way or mm-hmm. any body. Like it's right. your body's none of your business. Or um, as I've said to my own daughter, because she'll say something like, you're going to get a bellyache. She said to her cousin, like, you're going to get a bellyache if you eat too many goldfish. Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, well, I think her body knows how many goldfish mm-hmm. that, that she needs to eat. And you know how many goldfish your body needs to eat. Maybe your body needs a little less goldfish in order to feel to feel a certain way. But you don't need to worry about what her body's eating. Yeah. Her body yeah. And it's like one of those conversations. And then she goes, oh, 
okay. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, cool. Yeah, Move totally. On. She's also four, so there's <laughs> less pushback. Um, but I think one of the things that comes up, and I hear this a lot too, like, well, what about <laughs> the health then? You know, mm-hmm. how do I then untangle that? When mm-hmm. health and weight have become so entangled, and how do I then go to my pediatrician, who I'm entrusting with their authority, education, and looking out for our child? Mm-hmm. And how do I then go back to them and say, "Hey, I don't like the way you're handling this," or "I don't know," or "I'm feeling this way about it," um, and you're telling them that this is not okay? Can you, how do I navigate that? How do I then say, "Well, what about this? What about the health?" So a couple of thoughts. Number one is weight and health have gotten way too conflated in our country, in our dialogue about weight and health. I mean, it's just all woven together. So we have this sort of knee-jerk reaction of, but what about health? But when we start to look into it, and that's what I do in the book, is really like dig into this research, we start to see that most of it is correlation. Higher body weights tend to have these certain health conditions. Not being in a larger body causes certain health conditions. And that's an important piece to step back from. Um, There are times when body weight is a driver of certain health conditions, but it is not the most common scenario. It's definitely not the most common scenario for kids. And even when it is the case, because we don't have safe and ethical ways to achieve weight loss for people of pretty much any age, focusing on the weight is not productive, right? Like that's going to actually be counter to the promotion of health. Because what we also know, and again, especially with kids, is that the number one predictor of future eating disorder risk is dieting and intentional weight loss. And so being focused on weight as a measure of health ironically, can be really destructive to health because (laughs) it can set you up for all these other problems. And so taking the focus off off weight and thinking about, well, what does health mean in our family? Um, You know, and also I should also say, like, understanding, like, how how much privilege and how many resources go into the way we define, quote, health. And I talk about this in the book, too. You know, like, if you think of health as like, eating lots of organic salads and working out two hours a day like that's not realistic for most people that's not affordable that's not sustainable like you know so like coming back to like well what does health mean to me does it mean being able to do certain activities with my kids does it mean you know and that might not be true for everyone some people have mobility disabilities and so being able to like do an activity is going to look different um so really sitting with like health is a more personal concept can be helpful And then when you go into the doctor's office, number one, to whatever extent you're able, choosing providers who take a more weight neutral or weight inclusive approach is great. They can be very hard to find um, and not super accessible. But if you are like pediatrician shopping, I would ask some questions about that before you, you know, go to a practice. Um, But given that the norm is that you're probably at best going to get a doctor who's like, "Eh, not super focused on weight, but like, that's as far as they've gone with it. Um, Then setting some boundaries, whether that's sending a note in before the appointment or bringing a post-it note, you ask the nurse to stick on your child's file when they hand it over to the doctor. And it says something like, you know, please do not discuss body mass index in front of my child. I'm happy to have a conversation about this outside of the room um, or follow up with me afterwards. And so you're setting the tone that like, you don't want there to be a lot of focus on body talk and weight in front of your child. 
And then if it happens anyway, because it might, because doctors don't always take a while to post notes, um, then you say something like, oh, yeah, you know, I've been reading about that, but we take a pretty different approach in my family and we really trust their body. We trust that they're growing well. This is not something we're concerned about. And really, no matter what the doctor says at that point, your child has heard you advocate for them. Your child has heard you say, I trust their body. And that is the most important thing you need to come out of that appointment. Oh, I like that a lot. And I think, um, I feel like that can feel intimidating for parents in order to kind of do that if you've never done it for yourself and then you're doing it, but in that avenue. But one of the, um, what was I going to say? I was thinking about one of the things that you mentioned in the research, because you do dive into the research, was you made this note in there that I was like, oh God, everyone needs to hear this, about how if the research was one of the things that I think, oh, sorry, let me start over. One of the things that I kept like that kept coming up in the when we were dive when you were diving into the research around weight and body and how entangled that has become and how there's really only this correlation between the two things. One of the things that came up was, well, we're only looking at it because body size has increased. And one of the things you said was, we, what if, um, would we care so much if children were getting perpetually smaller? Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that alone lets you know, like, oh, wow, this really is something that we're focusing on because of a fat phobia and fat yeah. obsession in our culture. Yeah. yeah and in the medical research, like, would we be doing this? Would I care if my child was getting perpetually smaller if I didn't think there was an eating disorder like, right. with it? Right, you know, right. or something else. Maybe, right? We would think they're maybe malnourished. But I think that's an interesting point to bring up when reading about research, when having a conversation with a doctor about it. Well, how would you feel if my kid was getting smaller? Mm-hmm. What would change? How would you feel differently? What advice would you give my child if you didn't know what size they were? Yeah. Um, yeah. How would you approach this differently? What would you look at? What would you be concerned with? Would you only be concerned of type 2 diabetes? Because I've heard someone once say, well, they look like someone with type 2 diabetes. Oh, like, well, what the hell does that What mean? does that look like? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like explain that to me. Like, absolutely. What does that yeah. look like? And, and if there is a health problem, you know, if there's something in your child's blood work that's popped up or something that the doctor is focused on, you can say, well, how would you approach this for a, a kid in a smaller body? And let's yeah. start there because that's the treatment I want my kid to have. Because we know that, you know, when we look at how anti-fat bias plays out in medical care, we know that thin patients tend to get referred for screenings more, they tend to get longer appointments, they get more of their doctor's compassion and attention. So you're basically saying like, I, I want some of that. That's the healthcare I'm, I'm interested in for yeah. my kid. That well, sounds like that would promote their health more than us just talking about cutting out bread or whatever, you know, off the cuff diet advice I'm going to get here. Mm-hmm. I think also too, like from a nutrition, from a nutritionist standpoint, um, medical providers and doctors don't have nutrition education. They're coming to you with the same stuff, articles that they read online, like that you, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're not coming to you and validating that because they have some special knowledge that you, that you don't have access to. That um, was some of the reporting that surprised me the most is um, in the chapter on pediatricians. I found some really interesting studies showing just, and I don't have the numbers committed to memory, but really high percentages of doctors who are pursuing weight loss for themselves, even doctors who had a quote, normal BMI pursuing weight loss for themselves. So like across the board, doctors have this idea that they need to be smaller. 
and saying like, yeah, and I'd recommend those diets to my patients as well. So like doctors are, they're, they're humans. They're humans marinating in diet culture like the rest of us. Plus they have the medical school training that's like given them this very specific take on it. It's not surprising that a lot of them are really struggling with feeling like their weight is okay. I mean, they talk about expecting if they're in a bigger body, expecting patients to come in and judge them, which I'm sure does happen as well. So there's like all this nuance to it. And I think because we are so used to thinking like doctors are experts, doctors can be trusted. Doctors, we forget doctors have bias. Doctors have compassion and good intentions and love what they do and care about kids. Absolutely. But doctors are also human and are coming in with a lot of the same issues that we have. I think also too, one of the things as well is we kind of forget that doctors work for us <laughs> and we don't work for our doctors. Right. And I think that that's important to distinguish too, with your child, you can walk away from an appointment with your child and say, Hey, you know, I think we need to find a new doctor that gets us more, or that is going to be more supportive of who we are as a family. And like what, what we find to be important, or even having a conversation with your child, if they're older, like, how do you want to feel? What does health mean to you? What does that look like for you? And how can I help support you on that journey to make you feel like your best and feel, you know, like that you're getting that kind of advocacy for yourself. And maybe this doctor isn't the right person instead of saying, Hey, everything that they're saying to you is, is, you know, 100% has to be the way that it is. Can we maybe look at this from a different perspective and provide you an opportunity to share with me with how you're feeling? I think that's, something that I see that comes up a lot with a lot of my eating disorder teens is like a lot of times like, well, I'm just doing whatever they tell me to do to get everyone yeah, off the yeah. like, like we're really missing out on an opportunity for you to really have autonomy and to yeah. really learn what it is that we're, what we're doing to our body and how we can support it. And that totally this body is your home. Totally. Totally. Yeah. No, so I completely agree. Yeah. And I think just like, it's such a missed opportunity for providers to build trust with patients, for kids to understand doctors as people who should be on their team. You know, I mean, it's it's really sad. And, you know, I've definitely been in positions where I've just like stepped back from a relationship with doctors, you know, not in the sense of like not going to checkups, although people do do that. And that's understandable that people miss appointments, um, but just like not not really going in expecting to get much in terms of nuanced care, like just sort of being like, can I check the box that we've like done my mammogram and checked my blood pressure and like, okay, I'll see you next year, you know, like, and that's, that's a shame. That's, I, healthcare should be more than that. But unfortunately, especially if you live in an area, like I live in a a more rural area, we don't have a ton of provider options, like, unless I want to drive an hour, like, that's sometimes where you end up with it. And that's, it is really a shame. And it's all stemming from the fact that, the medical system is not reckoning with this bias and not reckoning with the harm they're causing. Yeah. You'd think that, <clears throat> excuse me, over time, you would start to see there would be like some like light bulbs going, <laughs> going off. But I feel like in some ways that's still so much counterculture. Um, and it's almost like a there's deeper digging in the heels around it and like mm-hmm. more aggressive and like, which is really disappointing. But so we... We know that fat phobia and diet culture live outside the home, but I think one of the things that can be one of the biggest harms to our children's relationship with their body and with food is where we see it the most. And the most I see it is at the dinner table. Mm -hmm. 
And I'd love for you to talk about that. I know you mentioned that in the book too. There's a whole section called diet culture at home. So yeah, yeah. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit and like, where do we see fat phobia the most? And as a parent, where like maybe pointing out um, where our own bias might be coming in and how to kind of, you know, see like, kind of like come up from the ground a little bit and see above and look down like, oh, wow, that's where it is. These are the things yeah. that are up and how I'm talking to my kid. It's a lot of different ways and it can be very subtle. Like it can be, you know, the family, I was actually just talking to a friend whose family gathering um, this weekend featured like really abundant food, like more food is made than like the nine people present can possibly consume. And there's all this talk about like, don't eat that, make sure you eat this first, you know, cutting the kids off from seconds on dessert or like, how come they're only eating the chips and they're not eating the soup or whatever, you know, this sort of like, so it's like both the abundance of food and the message that you actually shouldn't eat the food. Um, but also, are you appreciating enough how hard someone you work to make the food? So like many different messages that kids just have to like, like find their way through and are like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Except I'm coming away with the idea that eating is not safe, even though you made all this food. So there's that version of it. There's also parents who are much more controlling in terms of the foods they allow in the house. So we're a no sugar house or, you know, we only do vegetables for snacks or, you know, if you're going to have a cookie, it's only like two cookies. And did you eat all of the other food first before you get dessert? That sort of thinking. And um, I think it's important for parents to be really honest about what's driving that. And it is almost always anti-fatness. It is the thinking that if I let these foods in our house, my children will eat them uncontrollably. I will eat them uncontrollably and then we will all be fat. And like you have to like take yourself all the way through the thought process to see that and then say, oh, that's bias. That's not that's not fact. That's bias. And that's something that I actually want to unlearn. Um, and, you know, what we know and you as a nutritionist can speak to this, of course, is like when you ease off that restriction, when you give kids the chance to see how many goldfish they're hungry for, et cetera, et cetera, you're going to see kids being able to take or leave these foods. And that's not the victory either. It's not like, oh, wow, they didn't eat the cookies, even though we have the cookies. It's, oh, they're listening to their bodies. They're able to really enjoy cookies when they're in the mood for cookies, but they're not viewing every cookie as their last chance in life to eat a cookie, which then empowers it with this like whole sense of like, oh my God, all that matters is eating as many cookies as I can in case I never get them again. Um, and so, yeah, so, so noticing that it's also... You know, another subtle one is if one or both parents is dieting themselves. And so like it's pizza night, but mom's not eating carbs right now. So she's having a salad. And what does this tell kids about how moms eat and how women eat and how, you know, like who is allowed to eat the pizza or not? That was a version of that was something I grew up with a lot was like I was a kid with a lot of thin privilege. So I was always allowed to eat the fudge or the donuts or whatever we had. But I would be very aware that a lot of the adults around me were saying like, oh, no, I can't have that. You know, I'm, I'm going to skip that. That's going to ruin my diet. Or if they had it like, well, the diet starts Monday, you know, that kind of talk. And so it's understanding that those messages, of course, impact fat kids because it's teaching them like, 
this is this thing you have, you know, you have to control, you have to avoid at all costs. It's also teaching thin kids, like your thinness is some kind of like free pass. It's like a superpower that you can, um, you get to eat the cookies because you have the right body for cookie eating, which is not a thing. Like all bodies yeah. are good at eating cookies. Um, and cookies are delicious for everybody. Exactly. And, <laughs> you know, then what happens if your thin kid's body changes and suddenly, they have to engage, you know, they feel like they have to engage with food differently because they've picked up all these messages around who gets to eat this way. Or so, earning, right? Like, yeah. That yeah. too, like I've heard in my own family before, and I had to have a conversation with my daughter about it, was um, someone said, well, you can have, you can have more of that because you guys are running around a lot today. Yeah, that's a big one. Do not like that. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Like, mm -hmm. and I remember turning to Elodie like, hey, I heard so-and-so mention this, like when we were all eating, just so you know, you don't have to run around to get food. Yeah. Like like if you're hungry and your body's telling you you're hungry, we eat, you know, you don't don't ever have to worry about that. But I think that comes up too. Like you hear like these, like you said, they're subtle. Like there's like these little messages that come out. And then if you, you might not, and a lot of times I think feel like a big piece, like, oh, wow. Like I've heard for people listening, like, oh, I might have heard myself say that, or I might do that. Oh God, what am I doing? Like I'm doing all these bad things. No, it's more of an opportunity for you to say like, oh, wow, where is it showing up for me? Mm-hmm. How can I tweak that language? Or how can I look at that and say, hey, what message is that really giving my child? And how can mm-hmm. I separate that a little bit or does you know what kind of health culture or food culture or do we want to have in our home and is it aligned Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and and recognizing that it may mean you have to feel a little uncomfortable Mm -hmm. um or a lot uncomfortable because maybe what you do need to do is work on letting your kids have more access to the snack foods that you're like terrified for them to eat and you have to work through your feelings about um, how that's going to go. And, you know, and you deserve support on that. You deserve a therapist, a dietitian, whoever can help you, like, process that and navigate that. But, like, taking those steps of, like, we're going to try to do things differently, being clear with kids about that. You know, like, I know we used to have a lot of rules around how many cookies you can eat. And we're going to try just trusting you and trusting your body. And you'll figure out how many cookies, when it's cookie time, how many you want to eat. And I think that can be unnerving for everyone. I, you know, I interviewed one kid who, when her mom started to do that, she was like, I felt like, you know, the mouse trap and like, like, when is when it going to snap? Gonna hit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, really, really, you really mean I can have all the cookies now? Like, that's never been the case before. What will the, you know, so this is a tricky process of like rebuilding that trust and, and finding ways to support, um, support your kid and support yourself through it. But oh man, the potential for just removing so much stress around food in your family life, around bodies in your family life, and the gift you're giving your kid in terms of trusting their body is, I think, really worth it. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think one of the things that in the kind of like what can parents do portion of the book and that I really like was um, the responsive approach to family meals. And I think the biggest piece I think that a lot of people forget when we're going into meals, we think every single, and this has come from a nutritionist, we think that every meal counts, right? Like every bite at every meal has to be a certain way or has to look a certain way. And I think one of the most empowering and exciting things to do with your kid is to let them lead that and to remember that sometimes we don't 
myself included, don't want to eat certain things Mm -hmm. or don't, doesn't have a taste for something. And that doesn't mean that I'm quote unquote, a bad eater. Yes. And I think we could just get rid of those labels altogether. That would be great. But it's such a big thing. I think sometimes that's the thing. It's like, you don't want your child to be, to be identified as a bad eater or really selective. There's something like, like, again, like this, like weird scorecard for your child being a really adventurous eater and being able to eat anything. And adventurous is not eating goldfish. Adventurous is eating, you know, vegetables and salmon and whatever it is and different types of, you know, um, exotic foods and fruits. Um, And there is something in there that's like, yeah, my kid's an adventurous eater. They eat a variety of different things. Maybe it's veggie straws, you know, but, but is that not adventurous enough for you? And that usually the answer is no, for a lot Mm -hmm. of people, like that's not how we look at it. Um, And one of the things that I find to be really important is when my daughter will say like, oh, I don't like that. um, I'll say, well, maybe you don't like it today, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that opens up the door for well, maybe I could like it eventually, or maybe yeah. I don't like, I'll like, you know, she'll say like, I don't like peppers. I go, neither do I. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, and like just, and again, like, um, I mean, you mentioned consent at the beginning, like this whole idea that we want our kids to, I think there's something so flawed with the whole way we talk about picky eating right now with the, always with the intention of growing their palates and getting them to accept more foods. And when you think about it, like, you don't, like you want your kid, you want your kid to be open to new experiences and curious about the world, of course, but you also want your kid to trust when something doesn't feel safe and when something doesn't feel good to them. And you want that to show up in so many different aspects. You know, I want my nine-year-old who's like, you know, the tween girl culture stuff is starting. I want her to be able to say when like some like bullying thing happens at school, this doesn't feel good. I'm not going to participate. I'm going to, you know, step out. I want when my girls are teenagers and they're going to parties to be able to make their own decisions about drinking or sex, et cetera, by starting with like, does this feel good in my body? Do I feel safe here? And so thinking of the dinner table as a place to start doing that work and teaching that trust, to me, that's so much more powerful than like, can I get them to start eating ravioli or whatever, you know, like, like, this is such a, you know, and can I see them having preferences and disliking foods as a form of knowing themselves and trusting themselves? And, and you know, can I respect that? Even though, and I say this as someone who has two fairly selective eaters, and it is absolutely maddening to decide what to make for dinner. Every <laughs> like, absolutely, like, my most dreaded task every week is meal planning, hands down. And we are trying all different ways. And wanting to make them be heard, but also give enough structure. And it is a perpetual work in progress. Absolutely. But I do really try to hold on to they are entitled to have preferences. They are. I don't want them to eat something that doesn't feel right to them and doesn't feel safe to them. And like that is our sort of like bedrock, even if there are weeks when I'm like, does anything feel good except pancakes? Because (laughs) I would like to not eat pancakes for dinner every night. And I don't want to be a short order cook making yeah, and making exactly. enchiladas and making right, 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 pasta right. with butter noodles for this one. And like, oh, oh my gosh, yeah. Yes, yes. There was a night recently where, so we do choose your own adventure pasta very often because um, 
one child only likes plain red sauce, one child only likes pesto sauce. My husband and I are frequently sick of both options. So I'll make like an actually good sauce for us. And then I keep like frozen pesto on hand and the jarred sauce my other daughter likes. And so fine, they can have their own sauces on their pasta. But there was one night when they couldn't even agree on a pasta shape. And I also made two kinds of pasta. And I was like, nope, this is a bridge too far. Because like one only likes long noodles right now and the other one like can't twirl her fork well enough yet to eat long noodles and is like maddened by them. And I was like, we have to find some compromise pasta shapes. Like, okay. Or how about I cut the long noodles for you and you can eat them with a spoon? Oh, I did that, but it was still not acceptable. Um, Also, I wasn't in the mood for long noodles. Like I wanted rigatoni and so did my younger kid. And so, you know, so I was like, I'm now making the bucatini for the one who likes like spaghetti type pasta. Anyway, we don't need to get sidetracked into the that hell. But. I think it's relatable, though. I think every yes. parent can feel this way. Of like, oh, God, you know, like, how do you navigate this? And I think that's like the reality is that it is complicated, right? But at the same time, like, of course, you want to honor the fact they have prep, they have preferences and different desires, and you want them to feel safe in their body and to be able to feel like they can listen to it. But at the same time, parenting is exhausting as it is, and then trying to do twelve different meals for you know, every single meal every yeah, day. It's not exhausting. It's, it's not, not realistic. No, you know, it's, it's not, not manageable. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's definitely one of those things I feel like we're always getting a little bit wrong, but I would rather be getting it a little bit wrong and erring on the side of reinforcing their ability to trust their bodies and reinforcing that food is a source of pleasure then I would be getting it wrong in the direction of you have to eat what I say. Food is a way to manipulate your body size. Like, though, you know, if I'm going to yeah. tilt one way or the other, I'd rather tilt way over here. Totally. Um, yeah. yeah. Again, I think it goes back to like, what thread am I willing to pull here? And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that you mentioned in the book that I love the research on that I think people people don't realize is that a lot of the research around the family dinner is inherently kind of fat food. Yep. yep. And I thought that was really interesting. I'm really glad you brought it up because so much of it is around monitoring what your mm-hmm. child is eating, but really it's about the relationship and the quality time together that it is like, who cares if it's Chick-fil-A at the dinner table, right. or right. at the dinner table, we're all having a conversation about our day and sharing in it together. And I think that is really hard for people to hear and say, no, Christina, I can't possibly be right. Like there's mm-hmm. no way that that's equally as good, you know? Um, yeah, no, that was delightful research to unpack because yeah, we think of, and the problem is like like family dinner has been heralded as like this like solution to the quote childhood obesity epidemic. And so people are like making it all about the food when in fact, like it's, probably not going to have much of any impact on your child's body size. But the real benefits of family dinner are on its ability to, um, you know, promote better mental health in kids, help with anxiety, um, you know, reduce rates of disordered eating, things like that. And we see that coming from the shared time together. It's not the food that matters so much. It's much more in which then it's like, really, we shouldn't have been calling it family dinner research. We should have been calling it like time with your kids research. Quality time research. Yes. Yeah. Like maybe dinner is not the time when you, you know, I was just talking to a mom last week who has like a two-year-old and a five-year-old and she was like, they're a wreck by dinner. So dinner for them a lot of nights is a smoothie in front of the television. Mm-hmm. And we have quality time at breakfast and on the weekends and at all these, you know, like there's other times when she is like super present having conversations with her kids. And yeah. the idea that it should be at six o'clock 
on a weeknight is like a lot of us are at our worst at that point. So. Oh my gosh. I, we had that conversation in our house. I perpetually tell um, Casey, my husband, that I feel like, I feel like everyone's unraveling at 5.30 and it feels like, it's like everyone's losing it. And my daughter gets home at three o'clock now instead of at five when she used to because she's in a preschool now and she's so hungry and so tired when she gets home. And um, I'm not like I'm I told him the other day, I'm done telling her dinners later. I'm gonna give her whatever she wants to eat as a snack so we can all have a pleasant afternoon. Like otherwise it's just like this nightmare, like, okay, we're gonna have all of the snacks ready for you. Here's a table. What do you want? Like, do you want to have a smoothie together? Do you want to hang out? Do you want to have this? Do you want cheese and crackers? Do you want whatever you want? Like, let's just want cookies after school I don't care let's oh just... completely yeah no my kids <laughs> come home and some quality time. after school snack is like a three-course meal and then dinner is like an afterthought usually mm-hmm. and yeah and mine don't get home the bus gets them home at like 3 45 and we were eating dinner still pretty close to five because of like toddler schedule you know like we just hadn't yeah. like started to shift it and I was like well this is ridiculous like they're starving when they get off the bus they need to eat a significant snack and then I think they're gonna eat dinner at 5 30 like it's not you know so we're like pushing dinner a little later but it's still at most like you know they finish snack at like 4 30 and then wait maybe an hour and a half for dinner like it's not surprising that dinner is not their best meal like and when I say best I'm putting that in quotes like it's fine they sit for a few minutes they eat some things but they're they're on to the next thing. Yeah. I think that's something that I think I like in the book as well that you mentioned from a nutritionist. And I can't remember the nutritionist's name in there, but I'm sure, I don't know. People read it, you'll know, you'll know what I'm talking about. But um, they mentioned how about how you feel like every meal has to look a certain way because we feel like nutritionally we're like, they're not getting what they need. Mm-hmm. Um, or or, you know, that it has to ha- include certain components all the time in order for that to happen. And I think for me as a nutritionist, I think raising my my daughter was probably the best way of seeing like, oh, no, it doesn't have to be like that. Like, yeah, we can, we can choose certain types of things and decide how that's going to look. But we can also say, hey, you know what? It's totally cool to have jelly like jellyfish right now or whatever it is that you're in the mood for and then we're going to move on and then I we think that each snack or meal has to have certain types of components in it for the child to be nourished and that's not always the case and I think one of the things that I think gets confusing is people will like well my kid doesn't need a lot of variety they only eat strawberries or they'll only eat like my daughter's in a strawberry cake of course when it's like they're not in season. Know, they're like $9 a box. A pack. Great. <laughs> you know, like, I love this for us. Why is now the time? <laughs> yeah. um, and then today they were all moldy and I was like, oh, great. Oh, I know. Course, I feel yeah. you. I'm always, I'm always like, no, this one seems fine. And it's like so squishy. Yeah. I think that came from Catherine Zavadny, who is a great dietitian. I really learned a lot from. Um, and I really loved that she said, you know, the and I'm going to paraphrase from the book because Um, I don't have it memorized, Um, but (laughs) she said something like um, the most important thing for kids in nutrition is having enough to eat. And if your child is getting enough to eat on a daily basis, the like micro mechanics of nutrition are going to work themselves out because they will over the course of a week hit most of the food groups or over the course of a month move from the strawberry fixation to the bell pepper fixation to the whatever fixation, you know. And so that I think is something parents, I think I said in the book, like 
like write that on a post-it note and put it yes, on your you fridge. Did. Yeah. Because like that is so fundamental and so liberating to realize like any one day, any one meal, and even like an overall pattern of a meal that your child does not particularly eat a lot at or only wants very specific foods at, like just doesn't matter, you know? You're meeting you're you're working towards it's a much bigger picture thing than that. Yeah, and I think that's what we get and it, and it makes sense, right? Given diet culture and the way that we were raised, you know, we're raised in a way that's like, no, you have to be watching everything, counting everything, monitoring everything. Otherwise it will never happen. And, or you'll have these outcomes that God forbid you have them that you're, that's terrible, you know? And um, these are like the worst case scenarios you think like, you know, having, being diagnosed with something is like awful and it's our fault in some way. And I think kind of taking some of that pressure, like our kids don't need to have those types of pressures put on them because that's what makes it our adult pressure later on. And I think that that's kind of the story that I hear so much throughout the book of what can parents do? We can advocate for less weight talk. We can have a more responsive approach to family meals and empowering our kids to own their relationship with food and trusting that and showing that though they can trust and work on our, work on our own internal stuff and seeing where things show up um, and how we can kind of unpack that. And you do that really beautifully for all the intellectuals out there who want to see the research, you were like, <laughs> here's all the things. And then ding, 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 all the research that goes along with it. <laughs> I get it. I get it. It's how I work too. So yeah, it's what we, it's what we need to see. I need to see receipts. I got the receipts for you. So. <laughs> well, that's just it. I think that's it too. Is I think people love the idea of this and like, well, theoretically this sounds wonderful, mm-hmm. but what about, it always goes back to like, well, what about their yeah. health? Or what about yeah. these long-term outcomes that I don't want for my child? You go into that really clearly and say, well, let's unpack those and mm-hmm. see where the the truth is. Is mm-hmm. it really as long as a hard of a line from one to the other as we think it is? Actually, it's not, Yeah, you know, and it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think from a parent's perspective, the more that we can give ourselves a little breath, breath of fresh air. Wouldn't it be so nice for everyone listening to have your meals be more fun <laughs> and not be such a battleground all the time with your kids? And just think about what not only their relationship with food could be like, but what the, that does for your relationship with them mm-hmm. long term too. Absolutely, yeah, and what bigger messages you're giving them than about trusting themselves, about knowing themselves, you know, like being able and being able to experience pleasure from food, like so liberating, something that a lot of us, you know, grew up feeling was something sort of furtive or forbidden. And yeah, liberating all of that is it's super powerful. Well, thank you so much, Virginia, for for coming on. Is there anything that you want everyone to know about the book or when it's coming out. I know it's coming out. It's not out yet, but um, it will be soon. But do you want to share anything like that? Sure. So yeah, the book again is called Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture. It comes out April 25th. Um, There's an audiobook version, which I will be recording shortly, and the regular versions Mm -hmm. anywhere you buy your books. Um, and there's also a UK edition coming out around the same time for any international readers that'll be in like United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, et cetera. Um, 
And, you know, if you want more of all of these conversations, you can also subscribe to the Burnt Toast newsletter. That's at virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. And download and subscribe to the Burnt Toast podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at V underscore Soulsmith. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful talking with you. And I want everyone to read this book. Yeah, well, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. This is a delight. Hey friends, it's Dana, and thanks so much for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast today. Find us on social media at Wholehearted Eating Pod on Instagram and at wholeheartedeating.com for more information about working with Dana and Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling. If you love the show, we would love you forever if you'd share an episode with your family and friends or tag us on social media or leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people find the show. Check out patreon.com slash wholeheartedeating to help support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes with us and our guests, episode discussions, new resources we're creating for Patreon, and so much more. If you have questions for us, feedback on the show, potential topics or guests you'd love to have on, shoot us an email at hello at wholeheartedeating.com and we'll see you next week.